transmitting from the top of the Empire State Building on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, the radio for the Tri-State area. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lentz. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just unnatural, dog is off sabbatical, rather watch an exigent, politician, politician, CNN and all this, why do you move with the I think what we're going to hear pretty soon, Judy, is that in 2016, we had over 60,000 Americans die of a drug overdose. Um, this is much greater than the AIDS epidemic in terms of numbers. Um, this is more than automobile accidents kill folks every year. Um, this is an extraordinary crisis in our country's history. And I'm anxious to have those interim report recommendations implemented. And I know the White House is working very hard now to make sure it's done in a way that's most efficient and most effective. I know the president, and I know his heart on this, and I know that he's ready to do what needs to be done to get this implemented the right way. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie speaking to Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour on Monday about the Trump administration's efforts to combat the opioid epidemic. Christie leads President Trump's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Tonight, we examine opioid addiction in America and what the Trump administration wants to do about it. My guest, Jonah Walters of the quarterly magazine Jacobin, wrote the article Ending the Opioid Crisis, which appears in the current issue of the magazine. On August 10th, as Christie appeared to claim credit for, in the PBS NewsHour interview, President Trump declared opioid addiction in the U.S. a national emergency and promised to, quote, spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money to combat it. But one month later, there's little evidence his administration has contributed in even one of the three ways the president promised. In declaring opioid addiction a national emergency, Americans battling addiction from substances classified as opioids could theoretically receive assistance from more federal agencies. Andrew Kolodny, co-director of opioid policy research at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, told The Washington Post. Agencies that include the U.S. Public Health Service, which he described as a uniform service of physicians and other staffers that can target places with little medical care or drug treatment, Kolodny added that the DEA could require that doctors receive specialized training on opioid addiction, but so far, nothing of the sort appears to have materialized. Trump's declaration came on the heels of a report from Christie's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, which, in addition to urging Trump to declare this type of drug addiction a national emergency, pointed out that the 60,000 deaths per year that the governor of New Jersey alluded to in the clip at the top of the show means that the country is, quote, enduring a death toll equal to September 11th every three weeks. After September 11th, our president and our nation banded together to use every tool at our disposal to to prevent any further American deaths. The report continued, your declaration would empower your cabinet to take bold steps and would force Congress to focus on funding and empowering the executive branch even further to deal with this loss of life. It would also awaken every American to this simple fact. If this scourge has not found you or your family yet, without bold action by everyone, it soon will. You, Mr. President, are the only person who can bring this type of intensity to the emergency, and we believe you have the will to do so and do so immediately, unquote. 
According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, over 183,000 people have died in the U.S. from overdoses related to prescription opioids since 1999, with 15,000 deaths occurring in 2015 alone. So what's being done about opioid addiction in America and what should be done? Joining me now live in the studio is Jonah Walters of the Quarterly Magazine Jacobin. He wrote the article Ending the Opioid Crisis, which appears in the magazine's current issue. In it, he explores the opioid epidemic and the administration's approach to fighting it through the lens of his hometown of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Earlier this summer, 36 people overdosed on opioids in Williamsport within a 24-hour period. Hello, Jonah. Welcome back to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Jesse. What made you decide to approach your article like this? Why focus on your hometown to tell this story? Um, well, I think there were a number of reasons that I chose to, to focus on Williamsport and, and to really look at this national issue from the vantage point of Williamsport. Um, and one of them you've already mentioned, that there was this really dramatic moment earlier in the summer where there were 36 um, opioid overdoses uh, in the span of 24 hours. And 15 the following day. And right? 15 the following day. That's right. Um, and like I mentioned in the article, medical staff at local hospitals responded really heroically um, to these events. They saved dozens of lives using drugs um, like Narcan. Um, but there were deaths sort of sprinkled amid the close calls. Um, and that sort of, I think, was a wake-up call not only for me, but for a lot of people from my hometown who are living there and, and living elsewhere, as I am, um, to really pay attention to this issue and to see it as something that's affecting um, not only the country as a whole in an abstract sense, but, but affecting our neighbors, affecting our communities. What were some of the other reasons you decided to tell it like this? Well, I think that um, Williamsport is, uh, at least according to um, national news outlets, and, and I think probably to many of its residents, um, Trump country, right? It exemplifies uh, the places from which Trump drew a large amount of his support, exemplifies the places that Trump pandered to uh, in a big way uh, over the course of his campaign, and now it represents one of Trump's major challenges. Um, he repeatedly referenced the opioid crisis, the, this crisis of addiction, um, on the campaign trail, swearing that he was the candidate who was going to bring, bring an end to this scourge. Um, and, and that message was really targeted at places like Williamsport. Williamsport, incidentally, went 71% for Trump. Describe uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, to us. Have you noticed a visible decline that you feel the opioid crisis is wrought there? Um, well, so Williamsport uh, is a city of about 30,000 people. Uh, it's right in the middle of Pennsylvania in, in Lycoming County, um, where there are about 29 deaths uh, per 100,000 um, that can be attributed to, to opioid addiction. Um, it's, it's like a lot of communities, like, like a lot of small cities, I think, across this country in that it's a place that uh, was once defined by hard industries. Um, for, for a time in the early 20th century, it was uh, one of the logging capitals of the country. Uh, in fact, people in uh, at home are fond of boasting that for a while it had the most millionaires per capita of any, well, city, this was in the, the any city in the country. Um, uh, and then later it was a, it was a manufacturing area. Uh, most recently it was a center of the natural gas drilling industry um, in Pennsylvania. And as these industries have, have left, as these industries have abandoned this community, uh, we've seen um, a sharp rise in poverty, a sharp rise in uh, joblessness, um, and alongside that, a sharp rise in addiction. It's also the site of the Little League World Series, right? That's right. That's kind of its claim to fame outside of Pennsylvania. Uh, often when I tell people from Williamsport, that's the first thing they think of. One major thrust of your Jacobin article is that it's unlikely the Trump administration will be successful in reducing opioid addiction and death 
because of the president's mischaracterization, mischaracterizations ra rather, of who's really to blame for the problem. You write, quote, Trump routinely mischaracterizes the drug epidemic as an issue of border security, ascribing the outbreak of a domestic public health crisis to some nebulous foreign menace that shapeshifts according to the public to the political winds, sometimes China, sometimes Mexico, but never notably Purdue. Why do you believe it's actually Big Pharma's fault that people are abusing painkillers? Uh, well, I have, I have a number of things to say about that point. First, I'll, I'll mention Trump's response um, and his insistence that, that what we're experiencing here is somehow related to uh, lax border protections or some sort of um, influx of crime and criminality into this country. Uh, that's a myth. And I think everyone um, who has spent time thinking about this crisis and, and interacting with his victims knows that, that that's a myth. Um, we're not going to solve this crisis by building a wall. Um, we're not going to solve this crisis by funneling money and resources into police departments that have shown themselves completely unable to respond in any sort of meaningful, positive, reparative way um, to the blight of drug, drug addiction in this country. That, that's, not the, that's not the path to take. It is, unfortunately, the path that Trump seems determined to go down um, for a number of reasons, uh, which we can get into. Um, by Purdue, I mean Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Uh, and Purdue is one of many American drug companies. These are both pharmaceutical manufacturers and drug distributors uh, who have been sued by, by states like the state of West Virginia, like the state of New Hampshire, um, by individual communities or municipalities like the city of Everett, Washington, Orange County, New York, a couple upstate counties, or Orange County, uh, California, excuse me, and a couple upstate counties here in New York. Uh, indigenous nations like the Cherokee Nation have also sued these companies for essentially knowingly allowing their drugs to be funneled into the black market. Um, I think the case of West Virginia might offer the most striking examples. Um, in, in some West Virginia counties uh, during 2016, there were enough drugs funneled uh, into these small counties to provide um, pills for uh, 400 pills per resident, per every man, woman, and child in the county. And when you say funneled, what do you mean? Uh, I mean that, so drugs get distributed along uh, the, the way that most products get distributed, right? Through relationships between commercial entities, that s some of which produce the drugs, some of which distribute them, some of which sell them directly to consumers. Um, and what we saw uh, over the as this drug epidemic was developing and as the rates of addiction and overdose were climbing uh, is that companies and distributors were uh, filling orders that really had no business being filled, right? They were filling orders, massive orders to, to drug distributors in high addiction counties um, that were clearly out of pace with the actual medical need for the drugs in those communities. Um, and this was actually the topic of a, a, a pretty extensive DA investigation um, back around uh, 2014. 2015. Um, unfortunately, it was halted by a piece of legislation uh, that was pushed through the House and Senate by uh, Tom Marino, who's actually my hometown congressman um, and drugs and uh, Trump's new pick for drugs are. Um, this was the Ensuring Patient Access and uh, Effective Enforcement Act, um, which essentially halted DEA efforts to investigate uh, drug distributors and to seize their stockpiles of drugs. It's important to mention that beyond just the people dying from overdoses, you point out in your Jackman article that 12.5 million people reported misusing prescription opioids like hydrocodone or oxycontin in 2015 alone. Do you believe there are different solutions for non-fatal opioid addiction, uh, or are the solutions the same as treating, uh, trying to reduce the number of overdoses? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think that there are um, that there's a clear need for comprehensive addiction treatment in this country. Um, most people don't have access to, to addiction treatment, much less uh, good, lasting, sustained addiction treatment. Um, there's still a, 
a completely unforgivable uh, paranoia about uh, what's known as MAT treatment. That's uh, medically assisted, uh, yeah, medically assisted treatment. Um, so that's using drugs uh, like methadone to 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 slow the effects of um, of withdrawal uh, and to assist um, people in their recovery. Um, a lot of people, a lot of powerful people, lawmakers, and governors in this country still refuse to um, to provide state monies for those kinds of those kinds of programs. Um, but but the deeper problem I think is that as we've been hearing on the radio today and 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 over the course of the past weeks and months and years, in fact, um, the healthcare system in this country is broken. People are in dire need of uh, meaningful solutions in in of meaningful treatments, and they find themselves unable to access them. Um, which is why actually one of the one of the quite good and insightful um, recommendations of Trump's opioid commission uh, was to expand Medicaid to 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 um, issue an ex- some kind of executive order that would. Um, eliminate uh, restrictions that are in place that prevent many pe- many recovering addicts, many people who are addicted to opioids from seeking treatment um, using Medicaid. And yes, I mean, as you mentioned, we were listening to the news uh, before the show, uh, uh, Bernie Sa- Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and uh, Senator uh, Kamala Harris of California uh, talking about the merits of a single-payer health care system, uh, basically complementary, well, not complementary, but government funded health care uh, in a bill that Sanders is introducing in the Senate. How do you think this bill, if it were to pass, if in the future you would assume under a more Democratic majority Senate and House, that this bill was able to uh, to become law? Uh, well, you know, I, I don't know the, the particulars of that bill, so I'm hesitant to, comp- to, to comment on it uh, in any sort of great detail. But I, I do think that um, aside from, from just making healthcare more available to more Americans, which is which is a crucial step in this moment and, and in fact, is long overdue. Um, I think a, a turn towards single-payer healthcare would do a lot to undercut the power of pharmaceutical companies, both producers and distributors, um, and would likely prevent them from taking advantage of the, the sort of holes and back channels and uh, loopholes that exist in America's for-profit uh, healthcare system. Um, and these are exactly the kinds of loopholes and channels that allowed such profiteering to take place um, in the case of opioids. It would be disingenuous to have this conversation about opioid addiction uh, without mentioning the effect, at least to some degree, that race has played in into this issue. Uh, whatever the cause or solution to the heroin epidemic of the 1970s or the crack epidemic of the 1980s, these types of things were rarely discussed by members of Congress, uh, or certainly never got this type of oppor- you know this type of priority in the first year of a presidency, mm-hmm. with a commission reporting directly to the commander in chief and the commission suggested course of action getting enacted shortly thereafter. What do you, you what do you think of the argument that it's because a large segment of white middle class men have been affected by opioid addiction and overdose that this is finally coming to the forefront now? Oh well, I, I agree with that argument. Uh, I I think that's absolutely absolutely right. I mean, it, the the crack epidemic of the '80s didn't um, didn't elicit this kind of public sympathy. It certainly didn't elicit a uh, a posture from Republican lawmakers and governors that was that was um, almost maternal. Uh, it instead what it what it elicited was a draconian, tough on crime response at all levels of of law enforcement, national, local, state. Um, and and visited horrors on on Black America. Visited uh, incarceration, uh, criminalization, public disdain. That is entirely different, I think, from what we're seeing now. And I think that race does have a lot to do with that. I think plenty of people have pointed that out. Right, that this is an epidemic. This this current epidemic, this epidemic of opioids, that is disproportionately affecting white Americans. It's also disproportionately affecting rural white Americans. 
Um, and, and, and so of course that impacts the public response to it and impacts the response of, of, um, conservatives with white nationalist sympathies like Donald Trump. And to be clear, you know, there have been spikes in opioid deaths and addiction across all minority groups. Uh, some statistics I wanted to research before the show. Uh, I'm talking to Jonah Walters of the quarterly magazine Jacobin. He wrote the article Ending the Opioid Crisis, which appears in the magazine's current issue. Let's get deeper into the solutions here. If you were an advisor to the president or in Christie's position as head of the Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, what would you tell the president to do to reduce opioid uh, addiction or death? Um, well, I, I mean, I think the first thing that needs to happen uh, is for a national emergency to actually be declared. Uh, Trump has has sort of tipped his head at uh, the commission's recommendation that some sort of national emergency be declared. He's declared it. He said it on TV, um, but has apparently never filed the paperwork. There is no uh, national emergency um, related to this issue. There have been no additional funds allocated. There's been no plan of action released from the White House. Um, so the first thing is to do something. Um, the next thing I think is to follow the commission's first recommendation, which is which is not a controversial one in my view uh, at all, uh, which is to expand Medicaid to allow people to to use Medicaid to access addiction treatment um, at a at a much higher level than they currently can. Uh, that would open up um, thousands of treatment beds. That would make treatment available to tens of thousands of people who are suffering from addiction in all 50 states. Um, and at least according to the commission's report, it's likely something the president could do unilaterally with some kind of executive order. And what are some of the other recommendations that uh, Governor Christie's Commission on Opioid uh, Abuse uh, recommended? Well, well, some of them are sort of um, the typical milk toast, soft shoe um, recommendations you might expect. Uh, things about enhanced education, things about um, you know uh, speaking with doctors about the perils of overprescribing, sort of things like that, um, which are, are are likely valuable but are um, are, are certainly limited. Um, some of the recommendations they make are, are much needed uh, measures that could, um, if not halt the addiction, at least uh, compensate for some of its most destructive effects. I'm thinking especially of their recommendation that all, um, all uh, police and uh, emergency medical workers carry naloxone, which is really a, a miracle drug that can pull uh, people who are experiencing an overdose away from the brink of death. Uh, currently, a lot of... Um, well, certainly police departments, but but even a lot of rural hospitals don't have access to that drug, um, and it should be widely disseminated. Um, and uh, and then, of course, as I mentioned, there's the recommendation to expand Medicaid. Is that something that could be made more available if this uh, national emergency is actually officially declared? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're talking about naloxone, the drug. Yes, the naloxone. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, several states have declared officially declared states of emergency uh, related to this epidemic. Um, and and. What, that, what those states of emergency have meant in practice has varied widely, but almost across the board, one aspect uh, has been to allow the executive of the states, the governors, um, to, to establish standing orders for naloxone. There may be a lot of people listening to this program who are thinking, ugh, uh, just leave it alone. You know, when you consider the billions of dollars spent on the war on drugs uh, over more than three decades, widely considered a, a, a failure, Make the case, if it is indeed what you believe, that some sort of action is necessary here. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a moral case to make that, that action is necessary. I think that this is, um, as we heard uh, Chris Christie uh, mention at the top of the program, and, and to be clear, I, I don't consider Chris Christie a political ally. I, <laughs> I, I think there are very few things that he and I agree on. 
Um, but but I think what he said is true, that, that this is uh, a drug epidemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in this country, certainly not in a long time, maybe ever. Um, the rates of mortality are, are just off the charts. Uh, the fact that it um, seems to be a generalized crisis that exists in all corners of the country, in places both rural and urban, that sure disproportionately affects, uh, affects white people, but is also um, affecting uh, black people, especially Native Americans as well. Um, I think that's actually been one of the um, one of the biggest holes in, in, in coverage of this epidemic is the toll it's taking on Native American communities. Um, as I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, the Cherokee Nation has in fact sued drug companies um, for funneling uh, funneling opioids into those communities. Um, this is a national problem. It's a national problem that's having incredible effects on places across the country, places like my hometown. Um, and it and it needs a political response. I think that there's a temptation too often to back away from political solutions. Um, I, I think that's understandable only in a policy context where so many social problems have already been placed outside the realm of politics, where there already seems to be this consensus that um, there are some problems that are simply social in nature and can't be solved politically. I think that's a myth, and I think it's kind of pernicious. I think it's very pernicious, um, and I think there's no excuse for, for our government, for our political leadership failing to act in this case. You mentioned in our correspondence leading up to this interview that you're particularly concerned about the president's decision to nominate Tom Marino, uh, the congressman for Westport, Pennsylvania, your hometown, as drug czar. How could Marino's role as drug czar affect the administration's efforts to respond to the opioid crisis? Yeah, well, so uh, like you mentioned, Tom Marino is my hometown congressman. He's a Republican from Pennsylvania's 10th district. Um, He's an absolutely atrocious choice for drug czar uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I, I don't know exactly how he would use that position, how he would use the power of that office to, to combat this, um, this drug, drug epidemic. Um, to be honest with you, I'm, I don't know if he'll be confirmed. His, his confirmation hearing hasn't, been, uh, hasn't yet been scheduled. Uh, but I think if he is confirmed, um, that'll be a scary development indeed. Uh, this is a guy who, who pushed through that bill I mentioned uh, a couple moments ago that insulated drug distributors from DEA investigation. Um, this bill was, in fact, so controversial, uh, even among DEA uh, agents and officials, uh, that um, at least one of them uh, lost his job over it, stood up in Congress and, and said that this was a bill that was protecting defendants, protecting criminals. And by defendants there, he means corporate defendants. He means companies like McKesson um, that were knowingly funneling drugs into the black market. Um, and that's really in character for Tom Marino, who uh, is something of a drug industry darling. I mean, he's he's pulled down uh, $150,000 in campaign contributions from drug companies over the, over the course of three campaigns. And I think what's most striking to me is that those numbers uh, go up over his time in Congress. He's clearly being rewarded with increased contributions uh, in exchange, or if not directly in exchange, in, in gratitude for drug legislation this that this industry likes. So um, when he first ran for Congress, uh, back in the 2012 election cycle, he received something like $17,000 in campaign contributions. That number has climbed, um, such that, uh, at his last election cycle in 2016, um, he received more like $70,000 in campaign contributions. From pharmaceutical companies? From pharmaceutical companies, yes. Do you believe that the government response for opioids should be different than for illegal drugs? What do you think, for example, the government response should be for 
<clears throat> for heroin users whose numbers have jumped from uh, 404,000 people in 2002 to 948,000 in 2016, according to numbers released last week by the National Institute on Drug Policy. Fatal overdoses from heroin in that same study are up an estimated 533 percent from 2089 and 2002 to 13,219 in 2016. Doesn't the heroin epidemic demand the same kind of urgent action as the opioid epidemic, particularly considering the way the two are connected often by people uh, abusing them? Aren't they both national emergencies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we're talking about the same emergency, and I think we should resist any impulse to, to, to separate those two things, to say that addiction to prescription opioids is a different phenomenon than addiction to heroin. It, it, it's not. Um, I mean, by, by the attorney general's own admission— um, about 80% of heroin users begin by using prescription opioids, by abusing prescription opioids. And, and huge numbers of those people were prescribed those opioids for genuine medical concerns, for actual pain conditions. Um, uh, pharmaceutical opioids like, uh, like hydrocodone or oxycotton are incredibly addictive, and that's something that their manufacturers have known for a long time. They've also become more scarce. Um, in, in the sense that they're harder to get for a lot of people as, um, as this issue has gained prominence and as, as certain steps have been taken, especially at the state and local levels, to curb the flow of pills through pain management centers. And so a lot of people, in the absence of meaningful addiction treatment, have turned to the street, have, have begun purchasing drugs like heroin, purchasing drugs like fentanyl, which is um, much, much stronger than heroin and uh, is largely responsible for these sort of episodic outbreaks of overdose that we see around the country and that we saw earlier this summer in, in Williamsport. In the last minute that we have here, what would you like people to do to move the government towards what you feel is a sane drug policy? Uh, I think people in high addiction communities and people around the country have to stay vigilant and resist tooth and nail any uh, any move on the part of the Trump administration and its local surrogates to turn this into uh, an immigration issue of some kind, into a border security issue, into some sort of uh, opportunity for tough on crime rhetoric and punitive policies targeting um, poor people and people of color. I think we need to be on the alert for that. That is not the way to end this epidemic. That's the way to use this epidemic to advance um, the Trump coalition's most noxious political goals. Thank you very much. Well, of course. Thanks for having me again. My guest has been Jonah Walters of the quarterly magazine Jacobin. He wrote the article Ending the Opioid Crisis, which appears in the magazine's current issue. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio for the tri-state area. I'm Jesse Lent. And that's going to do it for this week. You can hear all 41 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter or contact me directly at the email address jesse at wbai.org. And I want to send just our, our love to everyone affected by the two terrible hurricanes that we've seen in the last recent weeks. Uh, our thoughts and our hearts are with you. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time.